Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. We'll start in a minute or two. I just wanted to say a few things before we do get started. My name is Peter Glazer, and I'm a professor in the Department of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies, and co-curating this series and teaching the class that this series is tied to. Um, this is a project uh, funded by a number of different institutions around the campus, including Arts and Design at Berkeley, and the class is entitled Thinking Through Art and Design at Berkeley. And uh, we have a series of lectures every Tuesday for the students and discussions with the students, and then on Thursdays we open it to the public and bring special guests, such as the people we have today, to um, talk about the work that they do as artists, to talk about the projects they're involved in, and then the students also get to see the work that um, these artists are presenting around the campus. So that's our plan. I just want to make a quick announcement to the students. Uh, we're, everyone in the class is seeing Dreamers on Sunday. And students, if you haven't picked up your tickets yet, don't worry. They will be available for you after class. And you can pick them up there. And those of you who have not purchased tickets for Dreamers yet by the end of this talk, I am sure you will. So let me introduce our guests Sabrina Klein is the Director of Artistic Literacy at Cal Performances and the founder of the first inaugural upcoming, I like that series of words, the first inaugural upcoming Artistic Literacy Institute for promoting artistic literacy as a human right. She received her PhD at UC Berkeley in the Department of Dramatic Art, which is the department that I am now involved in under another name, and has taught at UC Berkeley and Harvard University and has facilitated dozens, perhaps hundreds, of community conversations with artists, with communities about art, and with people who think that the arts don't matter to them. Sabrina is a theater artist, mother, and an activist on behalf of the role that the arts and artists play in healthy communities and connected societies. And we're thrilled to have Sabrina from Cal Performances here with us. Award-winning composer Jimmy Lopez Belido has been described as, quote, one of the most admired among the younger generation of South American composers. That's the Chicago Tribune. And, quote, one of the most interesting young composers anywhere today in the Chicago Sun-Times. Lopez earned his doctorate from here at UC Berkeley in the Department of Music in 2012 and is the current composer in residence at the Houston Symphony. He is known for combining European compositional techniques with South American musical influences in his acclaimed and dramatic works. He and playwright Nilo Cruz, who wrote the libretto for Dreamers, which is, his, which is premiering this Sunday in Zellerbach Hall, previously collaborated on an opera adaptation of Anne Patchett's novel Bel Canto for Lyric Opera of Chicago, which was broadcast on PBS Great Performances. So we're thrilled to have... Jimmy Lopez Belido and Sabrina Klein here with us today. Welcome. Thank you, Thank you very much. I think this is on. Can you all hear me? As Peter told you, my name is Sabrina Klein. I'm the Director of Artistic Literacy at Cal Performances. I like to say, because it's true, that I am the only Director of Artistic Literacy in the country, maybe even the world. Um, and the reason Cal Performances has a Department of Artistic Literacy is because we believe that it is a basic human right to have access to great works of art. <clears throat> in our great works of art, and let's face it, sometimes even in our lousy works of art, is the best expression of our exploration of being a human being, what our relationship is to ourselves, and I think 
equally importantly, our relation to others. We hear about others' experiences and can connect with them emotionally, intellectually, meaningfully through the arts in a way that no other expression allows for us. So although in a major university like UC Berkeley, in fact the top public university in the world, we do um, have to privilege the written and the spoken word. That kind of linguistic literacy is really important. We also have to acknowledge its limitations. Otherwise the arts wouldn't exist. We wouldn't need the arts to express those things that aren't necessarily easily conveyed in the spoken and written word. We have at Cal Performances a commitment to looking at the arts, not just as a human right, but as an expression of creativity, arts, and learning in each human being. The reason this marvelous composer, Jimmy Bolito Lopez, is here with us today is because Cal Performances has an initiative in research and development in creativity, arts, and learning. It's like the best acronym ever if you put that together, research and development initiative in creativity, arts, and learning. It spells radical, and Berkeley is known for its radicals. And Jimmy is one of our radicals here with us because of the work he's premiering, world premiere, here on Sunday with us. I'm going to let Jimmy take you through the development of Dreamers, the work that's going to be presented on Sunday that you all are coming to at 3 p.m. It's a matinee, so if you didn't know that, write it down. Um, and I'm going to let him talk about that. Then I'm going to ask him a few questions, and then we'll have an opportunity for Jimmy to answer any questions from you all. Right? So right now I'm just going to turn it over to you Thank and you. let you talk us through this extraordinary commission. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. So, yes, I, I graduated from the music department in 2012 with a PhD in music, and I have lived in Berkeley ever since, and I'm very happy to present this work here. Uh, Dreamers is an initiative that is from Cal Performances, and that then it's then artistic director Matthias Tarnopolsky, and the conversation started back in 2016. Um, it is a co-commission, so it is, a, it is a collective endeavor. A work of this size and, and scope really demands the cooperation of several institutions. And we have Cal Performances, we have Washington Performing Arts, Stanford Live, and University Musical Society from Ann Arbor, Michigan, with funds from the Hewlett Foundation. Now, um, I have actually been traveling quite a bit this past couple of weeks or more uh, because all these organizations have been creating a dialogue around dreamers, which I think is essential for a work of this uh, importance and relevance. And um, so I was in Washington, D.C. for conversations with students uh, and different uh, you know, communities, theater groups, and other people who will otherwise not be interested in a subject or an oratorio, for that matter. Um, I was also just recently, I came back last night actually from Michigan, from Ann Arbor, where we also had an open workshop with the performers who are the Philharmonia Orchestra of London, Esapeka Salonen, conductor, and now conductor designate of the San Francisco Symphony, and uh, Ana Maria Martinez. Uh, the two choruses that are going to sing Dreamers are Volti and UC Berkeley Chorus. So I was there in Michigan also in an open forum where we took questions from the audience 
and we are trying to create this dialogue. So what I want to start with is just a short video that uh, Washington Performing Arts presented. Um, and I'm going to... I'll get out of the way. <laughs> I'll just play it to you and then I'll continue with the presentation. Hello, my name is Jimmy Lopez. I'm the composer of Dreamer, an oratorio with lyrics by Nilo Cruz that has been co-commissioned by Cult Performances, Stanford Life, University of Michigan, and the Washington Performing Arts with funds from the Hewlett Foundation. I invite you to experience Dreamer with us this season. We wanted to create a work that will be contemporary um, in many ways and also relevant to our day. What they're going through is just harrowing and I've had these you know, illuminating interviews with them at UC Berkeley that have um, given me a whole scope of what it is that they're going through and their families. It's really incredible the variety of experiences that you have. One thing they have in common is this great respect and love for their parents and for the sacrifices they've made and almost like whatever status they might achieve um, won't really, um, kind of won't, will and won't make a difference because their parents will never have a path towards, you know, citizenship or, and that also is, is heartbreaking. We want to create something that, um, that creates empathy, that we want to bring awareness to a topic that is often not understood and that is being used uh, as a political weapon in a way. Uh, what we want to remember is that it's not all about politics, you know. It is a politically charged subject, but at the same time, these are real people with real lives who are being caught in the middle of, um, in the cracks, let's say, of the immigration legal system. We have to sit down and create a dialogue. And when you as an artist try to create a work of art, um, you are also trying to stimulate that kind of dialogue. And what music and what this, you know, what music can do with, in the combination with words is to stir emotion. I think given the subject having Washington involved uh, is very important. Uh, we want uh, people in Washington, D.C. to be a part of this dialogue because uh, this is a nation's capital, I mean, and um, this is the heart of the discussion. Okay, and the reason why I wanted to present this to you is because Washington Performing Arts is doing something special. They're going to simulcast our performance from Berkeley. So it is going to be streamed live on the internet, but in addition to that, it is actually going to be um, presented to, you know, broadcast to a theater called the Sydney Harman Hall at 6 p.m. Washington, you know, e Eastern Time, uh, as we witness the premiere here. So... What I want to do next is just walk you a little bit through the timeline. Uh, the origins, as I was saying before, conversations with Rob Bayliss, who is Interim Artistic Director now, and Matthias Sarnopolsky, former Artistic Director of um, Cult Performances. That was in August of 2016, when obviously the outlook 
of uh, this topic was very, very different. Do you mind if I jump in with a short story here? Uh, with R Rob and Matthias happened to be walking across campus shortly after the election results of the 2016 um, presidential campaign. And there was a group of campus students um, on campus carrying a big sign, undocumented, unafraid. And that was the source of inspiration to connect with Jimmy and ask him what he would be interested in doing in that context of being on a campus with a community so deeply affected by the immediacy of the political moment. And obviously things have evolved since 2016, and Jimmy will talk about that a little bit. But I think it's important to note that for Rob and Matias, our artistic directors, it was students on campus who were the first spark of inspiration for this. Yes, indeed. And when we uh, jointly applied to a Hewlett 50 Arts Commission, which was uh, launched in January of 2017, they had these selection criteria. As you will see, one of them is community engagement. And so we wanted to create something that was directly linked to the community, to the city of Berkeley, and something that will be current and relevant to our time. When I did my research on the city of Berkeley, I found out something I didn't know, which is that Berkeley was the very first U.S. city to become a sanctuary city. Now, it didn't have much to do with immigration back then, actually. I have a link to the major's office, which explains what it was. So in 1971... Berkeley passed a resolution to protect sailors resisting the Vietnam War. Um, and as they say here, as a sanctuary city in the last paragraph, Berkeley has committed to not support, communicate with, or submit to the demands of the Federal Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers. Now, the whole concept of sanctuary city, which I'm sure you are very familiar with, means that local authorities do not cooperate with federal authorities uh, whenever the individual conscience mandates uh, differently. So the concept of you know, Berkeley being the first sanctuary city struck me as important. And that also became like the basis of the whole dialogue. The recipients of the Hewlett Foundation were announced in November of 2017, which obviously didn't give me much time to work on the piece. But, and I'm telling you that... Um, so the Philharmonia Orchestra has been in residence uh, at call performances a few times already, and they had already scheduled the residency for March of 2019 when we were granted um, the, one of the, the arts commissions. And so that meant that we had to immediately you know, go, go on into the research phase, which was conducting interviews. And we conducted two sets of interviews. Uh, the first round was in January of 2018. The second one was in March of 2018. The first one was just myself and, um, and a few undocumented students from campus who valiantly came forth to, to discuss um, their experiences. And that was facilitated by Sabrina Klein and in cooperation with, you know, between Cal Performances and UC Berkeley. Uh, that was very illuminating. I recorded those interviews. Uh, they were recorded in confidentiality and later destroyed, never uploaded to the Internet. And when they were shared to, with Nilo, they were sent by a regular mail. Nilo lives in Miami, Florida, by the way. And he joined me in March uh, for a second round of interviews. And so he himself was able to hear some, some of those testimonies. 
Now, many of those testimonies were being shared for the very first time, which means that um, it was a very emotional and it was very intense. We had to find a balance between trying to hear their stories and get the information we wanted to get, but at the same time allowing them to, go, to share just whatever they were comfortable uh, with sharing. The next step was the creation of the libretto. Uh, so Neil went back home. He started to write the libretto, which I think I got the first drafts in May of 2018. Um, now, Nilo has always said, you know, the, the libretto is not a journalistic document. It is not just a transcription of those interviews. It is a work of art. And Nilo's poetic language can encapsulate so much. And you will see that when I actually show you excerpts from the libretto itself. Now, the composition of the piece happened between May and November of 2018. And it was a highly collaborative process um, because, honestly, when you're writing um, a piece of this importance, you have to be in touch continually uh, be, with your librettist if you're a music composer. So this is not just Nilo sending the words and I sending them to music. It is uh, a back and forth, you know, by email, by a phone, by a text message, whatever medium you can, and at any time of the day you need to communicate. Um, we, needed, we wanted to create awareness uh, to about these current affairs. And, and I mentioned the challenges of writing chronologically. Um, now, why? Because I don't write chronologically. And for those who are creative minds here, um, you understand that you know, there is a certain difference between writing something in a chronological fashion and, and not. For me, it's important to establish connections between different parts of the work. Music is an art that unfolds over time. Therefore, you want to quote what we call motifs, musical motifs, at different parts of the composition. And for that to happen, you kind of have to have a very clear idea of what's going to happen, for example, in movement number six, if you want to quote it in movement number two. So you cannot necessarily start working on movement number two without having written parts of movement number six. So it all fits you know, back and forth. But that was really challenging because I, I didn't have the luxury of doing that this time around. I had to write it chronologically because of the time constraints. My publishing house also had to elaborate a piano vocal score. Now, what I produce is an orchestral score, uh, which is around this, this big. And it has all the instruments of the orchestra, the chorus, and the solo voice. But that has to be reduced to a piano vocal score, which is like the, just the voice parts and a reduction for the piano, which is useful in a rehearsal context. And that score is a little like, larger than this. So um, all that kind of production line had to be, had to be fed by me. And so that, that's the reason why I, wasn't, I didn't have the luxury of just finishing the whole work before submitting it to my, to my publishing house. We had, to, we had to work together. Uh, the delivery of the final and engraved orchestral materials happened in December of 2018. And the rehearsals have been happening all over the place. Volti, has been, Volti is a, a San Francisco-based uh, choir, choir, professional choir, uh, of about 20 uh, singers. And the UC Berkeley Chorus is a lot larger than that, and is based here on campus. They had been rehearsing separately until last week when they started to you know, rehearse together. Um, and then the Philharmonia Orchestra, which is based in London, uh, started rehearsing on February 25th, and I flew actually in March uh, for a rehearsal with them and Ana Maria Martinez, and we're going to be rehearsing all the way until the day of the premiere. 
There we go. Um, In fact, I think the premiere is the first time everything comes together on the same stage. Well, the, the day of the premiere, we're going to have a rehearsal from 11 to 2. Right. It's going to be pretty fresh, though, when you see yeah. it at 3 o'clock on Sunday. It's an unusual setting, I have to say. I've, I've been flying all over the place for rehearsals, and, uh, but, you know, we, we make it work, for sure. Um, now I want to show you, um, can you read this? I just wanted to ask. Can you? And there is a copy of the libretto in the programs, if you picked one up on your way in. Right. at the back of the book. So this is Nilo's libretto, and I just want you uh, to walk you through it really quickly. It is divided into four sections. The first of one is called The First and Longest Journey. And I really love the approach uh, that Nilo had to this, to this um, libretto. And in, if I ever had writer's block, it was right at the beginning of the piece, because the words are so grand and so biblical. I think they're grander that... It was really challenging to set them to music. You know, before the divide of lands, before everything and nothing, there was the will, the will to migrate. So with these words, uh, Nilo is rooting the whole concept of migration to times you know, immemorial and basically telling us that even though this is a very current subject, migration has been part of human nature since the very beginning and part of nature as, a, as well, actually. It is... Um, then he makes references that are kind of, you know, intriguing to me. He talks about leaves, uh, three clouds, and I interpret that as journey, as movement. Um, he talks about the Lord of the Shales. The Shales were the very first uh, coin that I think humanity ever used uh, for trade, and they also relate to the ocean, the expanse of the ocean, which has been the ultimate frontier, or was the ultimate frontier Jimmy, for are the notes in red your thoughts? Yes, I, yes, good to clarify that. <laughs> yes, those are not Nilo's words. Um, then the chorus goes on to talk about, you know, years before, fearless and barefoot, women and men took their first steps and journeyed night and day. And I love that, you know, he's talking about the freedom of movement, because back then people just moved around. They just walked uh, and without the fear of having to be stopped at a checkpoint. So there was no such thing. And it is just, you know, that he's hearkening back to those times where movement was just free. Then he goes on a little bit, you know, what I see um, is like almost looking at planet Earth from, from outside and then zooming in. Because he then starts to give us a little bit of uh, hints of where we are geographically. He talks about the puma and the eagle. Both are animals that are in, uh, strongly associated with Native Americans in the north and in the south. Uh, the puma being more of the south. For example, the city of Cusco in Peru is shaped uh, in, in the shape of a puma. And the eagle has been traditionally associated to you know, Native Americans here in in North America, and also, to this day, a symbol of the United States. Um, then we go to modern day, talking about children who came along the highway. So now he's giving us a little bit of a hint that we're departing from that time immemorial world and going to modern times, talking about borders and boundaries. Um, then he goes to talk about settling, settle in places deemed sacred and blessed under the watchful eyes of their gods. And by talking about that, he's, well, basically the nomadic period of humanity has ended and some people have started to form settlements, societies, and there's a, a reference to religion as well. 
So um, after we go through this grand section, which includes all the forces, the soprano, the chorus, and the orchestra, we go on to movement number two, which is titled Borders and Boundaries, and that is for chorus a cappella. A cappella meaning that the chorus sings unaccompanied, no orchestra, no solo soprano. And here it becomes a lot more, let's say, focused on, on, on what we're talking about today, you know, current affairs, divide, division, fences, walls. The third movement, called Children, um, was initially a modest movement in terms of the proportions that it occupied, but it became larger and larger because as, as I started to write it, Coincidentally, the whole child separation crisis started to unfold. So it was very, very uh, tough because I, there was no time for me to relax. I mean, I, I wanted to turn on the TV and all I saw in the news was this. And that made it very immediate and very real. And so I will have to come back to Nilo and say, Nilo, could you give me just, you know, a few more verses? And yeah, sure. And then the next day is like, Nilo, I actually I think I need 16 to 20 verses more. And and, yeah. <laughs> and then the next day is like, no, actually give me four times as much as you gave me because I just didn't feel that the music uh, had reached you know, its full development and I didn't feel that we had told the entire story. So we needed more and more because as we saw it happening on the news, we felt that this was a subject that was gaining more and more importance. So this movement in the end, I think, became kind of the heart of the piece and it's one of the longest, or if not the longest, I think it's about 10 minutes uh, alone. So uh, one thing that he does beautifully is uh, how he depicts, for example, the, the innocence of children at the beginning, talking about two years of age, four summers tender as dawn, ancient as God, a new promise, a new joy in the air. But then he skillfully breaks our hearts later on, talking about children being smuggled out because they didn't deserve to be killed, safe from the arms of harm, rescued as if they, they were an extinct race. So those are very powerful words, and they're a direct allusion of the current crisis. Then the soprano continues using those kind of words, imprisoned, interrogated. There's a whole sense of uh, protest and accusation here, but it's, it's, it's just basically, um, uh, you know, talking about what is happening today. So there you see that what was... But when we were talking about in the first movement about this grand perspective of things, now it's becoming very real. Um, when we go on to movement four, called A Dreamer Who Studied Linguistics, which is based on one of the testimonies that we had, uh, here is where we really go into the nitty-gritty of, of the current crisis, and where the, the language uh, becomes less poetic and more immediate. We talk about... Um, we talk about... If you can see the first paragraph there, I was the boy who feigned to be asleep in the back seat of a truck. You know, this is this is something that's very clear. We talk about a deceitful war and declare fraudulent treacherous. I mean, what, some of them, and you know, everyone reacts differently to this crisis, and all the dreamers had different reactions. And one of them was very strong in his in his words, and I think anger is one of the reactions that is also valid. You know, some of them. Um, they are all fighters for sure they are all taken in different ways but some of them channel that anger also in, ter in terms of activism so I've, we felt that it was important to, to show that aspect of, of their experience as well um, now there is a resource I wanted to mention that the words silence, secret and landless uh, are 
a resource called alliteration, which is when you repeat a sound within the same... Uh, it's a kind of a poetic resource. And I use that musically. You will perceive that if you remember at the beginning of the fourth movement, you will hear the chorus uh, whispering, uh, the orchestra making sounds with paper and just breathing and all that kind of feeling of, of, of being of trying to camouflage yourself, trying to cover yourself and living in secret. Um, number five, called Sueños, is written entirely in, in Spanish. And that was Nilo's decision, I think, is a stroke of genius, because, um, I mean, admittedly, many of the dreamers that come to this country come from South America, and all of our, um, the dreamers we interviewed uh, were native Spanish speakers. So... I think it was important to represent that. And also, from a musical point of view, uh, when you set words in Spanish to music, is very different when you set words in English to music, because each language has its own cadence, and you have to, as a composer and a musician, you have to respect that. I mean, you see the translation, for example. The original says, sueños, 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 el mundo vende sueños. It's very different to set that into music than dreams, 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 the world sells dreams. And not that one is better than the other, it's just that they have different, different lengths, different cadences, different number of syllables and all that. So one has to really, as a composer, understand the intrinsic rhythm of the poetry. Um, yes, I, I mentioned that there's a link between the remote past and the present, talking about dreams that do not measure borders and distance, that find in everything an occasion for the journey. Um, when, we, when I was talking about this one dreamer who was uh, very passionate about his views, um, talking about monstrous white factories brought from the north, where his mother used to work for only a dollar a day, I mean, this is a, a different view of, for example, what he understands as imperialism and colonialism, in a way. Um, so that, you know, a, um, a factory that is supposed to bring prosperity to, to a place... That's the exact opposite, you know, by by creating pollution, by creating added poverty, and by 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 creating uh, work conditions that are not ideal. So this is another another person's perspective uh, from the south. Um, this is a beautiful combination of you know Nilo's poetic language and and really everyday language when she talks about buying a dream. Obviously, we're talking about here crossing the border, because the whole fifth movement is about the story of a mother and a child who are separated at you know, the border because she's trying to let him pass um, by hiring the services of smugglers. But we never say that explicitly, but you know, it is understood. And the word, compro un sueño, buy a dream, implies that. Um, then the sixth movement... And this is where, you know, the whole arch of the piece comes together because this sixth movement makes references to all the previous movements and also brings us back to this grander view uh, that we had at the beginning because obviously we want people to live inspired as well. You know, I don't, want, I don't only want to create a piece that, you know, will focus on all the negative aspects of the current crisis but also offer kind of a hope towards the future. At least I am hopeful that things will go better in the future, and I do want to believe that, because this is not the very first time 
that we have encountered this kind of crisis. You know, we, we have encountered it in the past, and we will, unfortunately, encounter it in the, in the future as well. So, you know, he becomes very specific here, and I thought that was important to frame musically as well. He talks about uh, the agony of the slave, and as I, I referenced the slave trade, of course, the tears of a farmer, and the farm workers movement led by Cesar Chavez, the cry of a raped girl, um, we're talking about the Me Too movement and the whole current crisis. These are my, this is my interpretation. These are not, this is not what Nilo has said this means, but this is the way I understood it. And I thought it was, you know, in a few words he encapsulates, you know, all this, um, the current crisis that we're living that is so multifaceted and it affects so many different populations. Um, he talks about brown boys being deported. So basically making a reference to racism because um, the population that is mostly affected is a population of color. Um, a black girl being shot, a reference to police brutality. Uh, politicians who hunt mothers and fathers. And businessmen who fear the future child. You know? And this is when, unfortunately, business uh, fears regulation, let's say. Um, anyway, but the very end is... Uh, he says, because nothing can stop the wind from blowing and nothing can stop the sea from flowing. Now, this harkens back to the very beginning because he talks about nature just having this uh, unstoppable force uh, to make its way through. And I think that's actually the message we're trying to give here. And that is that no matter what we do and no matter how many artificial borders we want to set, um, there's, it's just part of our nature and it will continue happening. So resisting it is... is is absurd and reasonable. Um, yes, nothing can stop the dreamer. Um, I want people to leave the, 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 the concert hall with that message in their ears. All right. Wonderful. Let's talk. <laughs> well, a, a couple of things come to mind having... Thank you for that exploration of the uh, libretto, by the way. And for people who are not familiar with these terms, the libretto clearly is the text that is sung in an oratorio. I wanted to go back to one of your first slides where there was a quote from the Chicago Sun Tribune yes. that said, or, or no, it was the New York Times, that said, this is no ordinary oratorio, as if we all know what an ordinary oratorio is. So would you tell us a little bit about why you chose, what an oratorio is and why you chose it for this project and what we might, how we might expect to see that play out on the stage on Sunday? Right. So an oratorio traditionally is a form that has been used throughout the centuries to depict uh, mostly at, at first biblical stories, like the story of the nativity. One of the most known oratorios is Handel's The Messiah, which I suppose some of you have listened to. But in any case, it tells the story of the nativity. So it was used uh, to depict that kind of story, you know. And, but it's different from an opera, for example. You know, an opera is fully staged, and it has characters in it, and it uh, tells the story from beginning to end, whether it be a love story, a tragic story, whatever it is. An oratorio does tell a story as well, but it's, it has more of a narrative quality, where the chorus and the singers can take on different roles, um, and they narrate the story. There's more time for reflection. Um, we are not so driven by action because there is no action going on stage. 
Uh, to make matters a little more confusing, sometimes oratorios are semi-staged, but that is not always a requirement. And actually, most oratorios are conceived to be just played in concert, like the one you're going to see on Sunday. So they really have just a couple of components. There's the libretto, the poetics text that you just walked us through. There's the music you composed to paint the musical version of those words. There's this full orchestra, the Philharmonia Orchestra of London. It's huge. I don't know how many people are in it, but... Like, I think it's uh, a... For my piece, you'll, at least it'll be a 70-piece orchestra. 70-piece orchestra and 80 singers and a soprano, world-class soprano, Anna Maria Martinez, um, singing that. And that's, that's all there is which is a huge presence, but there's a simplicity in all that complexity. Right. There is, um, well, th the thing is that like, we have a single soprano. That's also a little unusual in the oratorio, because in an oratorio you'll find more singers taking on different roles. We decided to focus it on a single soprano, and, sh uh, uh, you know, she takes on the role of sometimes first person, second, third, or omniscient narrator, and those are all devices that Nila used to, to tell the story. And the chorus sometimes comments, reinforces, or opposes whatever the soloist is doing. So all of this dynamic, you know, this point of view con continuously changes, something that would not be possible really in opera. Because in opera, the singer in front will have to stick to a single role. Uh, and in oratorio, she can embody many different voices. That's why I call it dreamers, actually. Because originally it was titled Dreamer. Yeah, and actually, if you, if you caught that on, my, <laughs> I did. on the video <laughs> from Washington Performing Arts, which was recorded before I started writing a single note, uh, I called the oratorio Dreamer because that was the initial concept. We, we thought we were going to still, we we're going to focus on a single story and tell it from beginning to end, but then Neil and I felt, well, that's not why we chose the oratorio. And also, we have heard so many different stories, we couldn't lose, you know, miss the opportunity to actually have those stories told. And that was a challenge that you and Nilo both talked about in the course of the interviews, that there isn't a single story, that among dreamers there's a diversity. Correct. That is often not represented in the social political that is discourse. Correct. That is correct. We tend to use labels really to separate people. I think it's very convenient to have labels, but at the same time you uh, tend to dehumanize people by using labels. And the thing about dreamers is some of them came as babies, so they have not known any other country or language. Uh, some of them came as teenagers with a formed identity. Uh, some of them found out about their status only when they were going to apply to college. So all of a sudden their dreams are shattered for the future, and then they, some of them enter depression. Some of them come from mixed status families, meaning that their sibling was born in the United States, but the other one, well, they were not, meaning that the sibling has all the rights and privileges of a citizen, while well, they don't. And that, you know, within the same family creates a lot of dissonance. So some of them flee war, others flee the drug trade, others flee poverty. So, I mean, the experiences couldn't be more diverse. And, and we tend to look at them as a single block of people, but nothing could be further from the truth. And we also came to recognize that dreamers come from all over the world, not just exactly. Latin American countries. Yes. But at some point, the focus became on these stories. These were also right. the, the students who came and spoke with you. Because we wanted to there. focus it on the, on the stories we heard, and most of the stories we heard were from students who came from Latin America, we decided to focus on that. So there are other oratorios need to be written about other dreamer experiences, <laughs> any of you out there who are looking for a creative project. There's still more to be said on this subject. 
Um, you and Nilo had worked together on a previous opera um, based on a novel, Bel Canto, um, which some of you might have read by Anne Patchett. Um, and you, so you had that collaboration under your belt as you came into it. You also have your own experience as an immigrant. You came to this country, not directly from Peru, but you were born in Peru and then you spent a lot of time in Finland. So you've been an immigrant in two different environments. I have, yeah. I, go ahead. And as I say, Nilo is a refugee from Cuba. So I'm just wondering about those experiences the two of you had in this process. Did it ha- how that might have played out in your collaboration or the conversations you guys had? Yeah, actually the very first time I experienced what to be an immigrant was, was when I was 11 years old and my family uh, moved to Miami for a year in Florida. <coughs> and I lived there for one year, so, um, you know, I, I had to adapt to a completely different language. I mean, I spoke some English, but going to school and having all your subjects in English was a real challenge for an 11-year-old child, and also living behind all your friends, and people might think, oh, in Miami there's a lot of South Americans, so it might not be as boring, but honestly, nothing could be further from the truth. Again, Peru and Cuba are not the same also, and, you know, just coming to to this kind of completely different context and be seen as the other, and be seen as the the kid from outside, uh, did make me uh, mature quite a lot, because I I had to find a way to survive. And I did actually eventually, you know, come to terms with it and started to do better in my studies and started to help, you know, polish my English and so forth. So it was a very valuable, valuable experience for me. Then when I was 21, I decided to go to Finland, to Helsinki, to study music composition at the Sibelius Academy. And I stayed there for seven years. So I have many friends. I actually speak the language. My sister, for different reasons, moved there a few years later and also and still lives in Finland. Uh, so I, when I went to Finland, of course, I, it was a different experience because that was, a, again, a brand new language uh, that I didn't speak at all, so I had to learn uh, over there. And I was, you know, I looked so different that it was immediately apparent. And, and people see you as exotic, you know, as, as from somewhere else, and you see them as exotic, so it's very interesting that that kind of contracts. Uh, but then, uh, then the whole the whole learning experience of adapting to an entirely new cultural country uh, climate uh, that was very enriching. And the, I, the weather must be a bit different in Finland from Peru. Slightly, I'm yeah. from California as well. Yeah, from California. So I'm glad I came <coughs> to this side to find like a middle ground. Um, and I came to the Bay in 2007 to do my PhD at Berkeley, and I have stayed ever since. So I have experienced what it is to be removed. I mean, my experience and that as a dreamers, again, is very, very different. Mm-hmm. But I do understand some of the concepts uh, mean being displacement and being seen as the other. And I'm sure that Nilo has experienced that as well. So that obviously has to inform the, you know, the work on this piece. Well, and being an immigrant m- means that this impulse to move to someplace else um, is sort of reflected in, in the lyrics there. And Nilo's experience being a refugee, sort of being forced out of his own country right. for safety, those needs to move, desires for a new home. Exactly, exactly. Um, played out differently for both of you. I think so. I mean, Nilo, Nilo has never shied away from dealing with topics that might be seen as controversial. But as I said in the, in the initial video, 
we, it can all be seen as politics, and especially I have had a lot of journalists approach me who are not familiar with music, and I'm glad that you know, a lot of, uh, this subject has garnered a lot of attention from media outlets that are usually not interested in classical music, and they're interested in understanding what I'm doing just because they're interested in the whole topic of dreamers. Um, but you know, in the end, this is a work of art. It is an oratorio for, for a, symf a sym choral symphonic work uh, that is trying to create empathy. Uh, and Nilo, as you have seen, hasn't literally you know, depicted all the stories word by word. It is really a, a poetic interpretation of them. And, and I have tried to create the appropriate emotional frame to his words so that, because music for me has so much power. It is so direct. It is more direct than, the, for me, language or any language you can use. So it has this immediacy that can help for other people to relate to, to those experiences. So my hope is, and I think our audience in Berkeley is going to be very open to it, but my hope is that uh, other people who might not be as open you know, in other parts of the country can experience this as well. I certainly think in the development of the commission that was intentional that the very current, very immediate topic would draw attention to the classical art form of the oratorio and ask questions about how this music is relevant today. And some of that's in the content. But some of, that, some of that's also in the way you make music, how you, what you put into the music. You gave us a little hint of that when you talked about sueño, or the, the, the alliteration of mm -hmm. the S sounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, silence, I forget what they are, landless, landless. and that the, we would be listening for the music containing that sibilant sound, sibilant? Sibilant. <laughs> sibilant sound, um, with the sounds of paper, the sound right. of a kind of a rustling. Is there, are there a, a couple of other places we might listen for on Sunday for how the music expresses what you hear? Well, I do a lot of what I call word painting on uh, certain times. Word painting. Yeah, I, I like to call it word painting because I create kind of a musical aura around certain certain words. You know, when, I, when we begin, for example, um, saying the word before, and as I was saying, that was really hard to come up with because I, I started different drafts. I started grand, quiet, somewhere in the middle, and then... I went on for having the solo soprano starting an upbeat, saying before, um, on, you know, alone, and then just have a Tibetan singing bow continue that sound. Now I felt that it was important to start with a solo soprano because the very first sound that humans produce might have, it was very likely that of the human voice. And, and after that, we, I put a Tibetan singing bowl because it's an ancient instrument that has been used in meditation and that allows us to concentrate. What, uh, what instrument? Tibetan singing oh, the Tibetan bowl. singing bowl. It's a bowl that is rubbed you know, right. uh, circularly and it produces this ringing tone. Um, and so when you hear her come in with a word before, then after that you hear this echo of the, of the bowl, which is ringing. And then when we talk about the divide of lands, I come in with a chorus quietly, and when we put the word divide, I open up the, the harmonies in a, what we call in music a divisi. You know? So from a single note, we come into a chord. And then that chord is sustained. And then when she talks about lands, then I ground it with like the double basses, the cellos, and the low 
woodwind instruments. So there's this opening especially kind of really draws the whole uh, poetry. So even if we don't know all the technical aspects of music the way you just laid it out, we'll hear the music reflecting the poetry yes. and the... Well, the more you know about, of course, the technical aspects, then you, the more you will understand what devices I'm using. Mm -hmm. But I think even if you don't, you will have a feeling that I'm trying to give meaning to the words through sounds. And this is what enhancing the meaning of the words is. And, but neither paper nor Tibetan bowls are traditional orchestral instruments. No, no, they are not. <laughs> but the percussion section is traditionally the one that allows you for more, more flexibility when introducing instruments that are foreign to the orchestra. Are there other instruments we might hear? Well, I did buy myself uh, wind chimes on Amazon, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I actually kept in my porch. Uh, and, you know, those kind of beautiful, you know, that just ring with the sound with the, when the air blows. Mm -hmm. And I selected them personally and before I sending them over to, to London. So I have, I have those as well. So there'll be wind chimes. That we'll there'll be wind chimes. Well, we certainly heard the wind in the poetry mm -hmm. and the concept of movement that you keep reminding us. There is something that I call also the dream aura, right? Because obviously these being dreamers, there's, a, for example, for those who understand more about music, I use a lot the whole tone scale, which has a little bit of this dreamy quality. It was used a lot during Impressionism talking about composers like Debussy, uh, for example. So I use that scale to create an atmosphere in terms of the harmony. But I also use that, and I use the vibraphone bowed to create these ringing sounds. And I use other, other instruments in the percussion section that allow you for this kind of suspended feeling. Also the harp in the, in the top register. So there's not one instrument that creates you know, an effect. It is a combination of instruments. That's what we call orchestration, precisely. That's why it's an orchestra. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. I, for me, the orchestra is a, is a tool that allows you for so much uh, variety. You know, and so it, it, I don't think it has any comparison to other, to other tools. It's the most, the most rich for me. Mm -hmm. We're going to take questions from you all in just a minute. I'm going to ask Jimmy one last question while you organize your thoughts. And I think a microphone will be uh, available so we can hear your, your questions for Jimmy. Um, you, you've given us a lot of sense of what matters to you um, and how you work. If we wanted to really see Jimmy Bolito Lopez in this piece, what should we look or listen for? Um, I prefer not to tell you what to listen to. Oh. Yeah, I'd rather leave you, um, you know, what I, I keep saying, come with open minds and open hearts, regardless of your views on the subject or your experience or not in the field of music. I think I want, I, I prefer for the audience to leave, let themselves be carried away by, by the music and the words. And so coming without any preconceptions of what the piece is, is better. It's good to come informed, like what, what we had today mm. is important, I think, for all of you, and it will enhance your experience for sure. Uh, you know, if you want to re research a little more on my music, that's also good. But in the end, this is a brand new work, uh, which is unique and special. And I'd rather have you just really come with an, you know, like an open, like a, like a blank sheet of paper, just ready to, you know, to receive. And then after that, form your opinion, have a discussion. And if you are not very much informed about the subject, well, I assume everyone in this room is, you know, but those who are, some 
who might come or who might watch the live stream are not. I, my hope is that they will do more research on the subject. And for those who are not familiar with orchestral music at all, I invite you to listen to the second half also, which has nothing to do with dreamers. It's the Firebird by, by Igor Stravinsky, a great 20th century composer. Uh, and it's a fantastic piece of music as well. So definitely stay for that. And it'll be a, a, a complete contrast, I think. Yeah, I mean, one is also... Structure and ideas. One is vocal, symphonic. The other <laughs> one is purely orchestral, mm -hmm. which I have written also purely orchestral works. Most of my output, indeed, is for orchestral works. So uh, my, my hope is that this will open a door for you to listen to more symphonic music also. Okay. Wonderful. Do we have a few questions from you all? I love the idea of tying, I mean, migration, just a kind of overview um, to see that it's not like something that's happening right now at this moment. It's been going on forever and going on all over the world. And the way we've handled it is that we've opened, I mean, not we, the, the world has let the butterflies free, you know, fly freely and we don't try to stop that. So I, I, I want to congratulate, I mean, the whole thing sounds fabulous, but the, the idea of putting it in context of nature and migration, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. And I love that you mentioned the butterflies because uh, I recently found out, due to the research that Wei Cheng, one of the choral directors, made, that the, the, the monarch butterfly, the orange butterfly, is a symbol of migration. And uh, we, have, we haven't made a decision yet, but um, we're probably going to have the chorus wear uh, orange ribbons as well, which also have a separate meaning, meaning uh, against racial discrimination and all that. So, uh, but yes, indeed, I mean, it's, it's, as I said, it's a subject that is, is really as, as modern as it might seem and as current as it might seem has been with us always. I do have to say that I've appreciated watching your journey and Nilo's journey with this. They came into this saying they did not want it to be political. This was not about politics. But the inevitability of telling a real human story that's playing out in front of us in a social, civic, political context makes it inevitable that we will have not just personal and emotional connections, but taking some kind of political view, even if that political view is just a reminder that this is about people. Right. Well, you know, it is, my intention is not really to change uh, that person's political views uh, in that, you know, they might continue to support this or that party or this or that politician. My hope is that they will understand that this goes beyond politics. There is something that goes beyond, mm -hmm. which is the common human experience and the dignity of the human being, you know. When you trespass those b barriers, you are not anymore talking about politics. And I, that's why I think that this subject, even though it might be framed within, within the limited scope of politics, it really has already gone beyond that. It's mm -hmm. about human decency. It's about basic freedoms uh, that are being denied to people, all just in the name of politics. And politics is, is not, unfortunately, well, it, it's not that grand of a subject. It doesn't have the capacity <laughs> to incorporate all of human experience. You know, mm -hmm. Politics is very, very narrow, as demonstrated by the current deadlock or gridlock in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have to go beyond that. And this work goes beyond that. And you do that in this piece by taking us back to before exactly. and projecting us forward. So my hope is for people 
to really understand that there are human beings behind these stories and to try to put themselves in their shoes and see, well, what would I do? You know, or what is the right thing to do, regardless of your political affiliation? Do you have any more questions? I thank you so much. This is wonderful. Could you talk a little bit about the link with the music from uh, Latin America? And you mentioned a little bit about percussion because it's such a strong and important part of the music and how you wove that together, particularly drumming. Well, uh, you know, my works are inevitably influenced by, by South American sounds because I come from South America, but I have lived in different places. Like I lived in France for a year. I lived in Finland for seven years. I lived in California for almost 12 years now. So at this point, my music is a little more cosmopolitan than South American, to be <laughs> honest. And, but there is, of course, a presence of Latin American music in it. But I haven't made any deliberate effort to include Latin American music into this piece. There are other pieces of mine that are more strongly influenced by it, like even in the title, one called Peru Negro, which is, uh, you know, it's an homage to Afro-Peruvian music, for example. Um, but in this one, I really let myself just be carried away by the words. And I felt that, you know, giving it, if I had, for example, put like a specific geographical reference in the music, I think I would have taken away from the grand perspective that Nilo gave me. So the I universal. really, exactly, the universal. So I, I decided to go on with something that, you know, doesn't necessarily make any direct allusions, but I mean, the presence, the rhythm is there. So it might have snuck in there, but <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to let us know where you hear it. There's another question in the back. Thank you. Um, can you hear me? Yes. It's on. Pardon? Point out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Thank just you, tilt Peter. it a little bit more towards your mouth. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the um, aspect of uh, artistic literacy is one of the most important things we can offer students. I'm sort of shocked sometimes at the um, lack of diversity in artistic information that, you know, young people have these days because I'm really interested in young people and I'm an elder and so I've had the great benefit of great diversity in music. So last Saturday I heard contemporary art songs and I heard the percussionist William Winnett play three uh, flower pots as his instrument. So you were surprised at um, the uh, use of paper or uh, a Tibetan bowl in contemporary oratorio. But the world has really changed in contemporary music. So I think that some of the students in listening to hip-hop and other percussionists might actually understand the diversity of instruments and a larger context and I do think that the uh, Western Orchestra is a fantastic element, but uh, there's just so much artistic literacy that needs to happen at UC Berkeley. I'm, I'm speaking up for that right now. 
and thank you for, I am so sorry I can't attend, because I'm going to see a one-woman show called Why Would I Mispronounce My Own Name? And it's Irma Herrera speaking about that, that nobody can say Irma instead of Irma. <laughs> so I, I well, look forward for to comment. live streaming it. Yeah. Thank you. And certainly using non-orchestral instruments in orchestral instrumentation is not new, but you've selected specific pieces for this uh, orchestration. That Yeah, those choices have to be born out of need, out of necessity. So if you feel that the subject calls for a certain instrument or a certain sound that the orchestra doesn't already possess, then you you just have to go after it. Mm. You know? Well, and some composers have designed their own instruments in order to get yes, that sound. Or like, like Harry Parch. Has yeah, or Olivier Messiaen with his wind machine yes, yes. designed. Yeah. So, yes, a composer is willing to go to strange new places. You had a question back here in the back row down here. Thank you. I wanted to ask when and how and where music first came into your life. Well, it came early because my, my sister started to play the piano <coughs> when I was around five years old. Uh, and I started to also play a little bit, but I didn't take it seriously until I was 12. But I don't come from a family of musicians. My father was an architect. My mother is a, a retired elementary school teacher. And my sister is a biologist. So I was kind of strange. And, and I never met my grandmother, who I was told used to play tangos on the piano, so that, that's my own uh, connection with music in the back, in, in the family that I have. Um, but my parents were very understanding and very supportive, so that definitely helped. I think when I was around 12 years old, and especially during that year in Miami, you know, when I, I, I think I turned into music more because as a vehicle of expression, because it was, it was so hard uh, to deal with the outside world. Yeah. And uh, that kind of helped me focus. So after that, I focus more and more on music. And music is a, a language that communicates across. It is a way of communicating, mm -hmm. for sure. I'm curious about what your expectations are for hearing or seeing an oratorio. Just quick show of hands. How many of you have seen an oratorio in performance before? Okay. How many of you have just heard one, a recording? So I'm just curious about your expectations, knowing that there's a 70-piece orchestra on the stage with 80, an 80-person 80 chorus and a soprano, and what the topic is about now. And you know more about the libretto than almost anybody else, except Nilo and uh, Jimmy and the singers, uh, the chorus. What are your expectations? What do you expect to see or hear. Has there anything that Jimmy has said that has changed your mind about what you think the experience will be like? I'm sort of curious about the uh, sort of motivation to produce empathy in the audience. And I guess I'm going to feel sort of guilty if I don't feel empathetic. <laughs> you know, but um, I, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, like how besides the actual text of the libretto, like the story, how might the music actually produce a sense of empathy for a listener? That's a great question. Well, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very different experience uh, just reading to the libretto in the 
you know, the quiet of your studio uh, than, than listening to, a, to it sung. Um, and I think it's the same for any, if you take the lyrics out of a song and you just read into themselves and then you listen to the song, you understand that music on its own has already the power to communicate certain emotions. So when you, when you set mu text into music, you can either reinforce the message or subvert it. There are very different ways that you can set uh, a text into music. And by creating uh, this frame, you, can, uh, you, you never can dictate what emotions the audience is going to feel, but, but you can generate some kind of emotional response from it. And I think this is the power of music, because music without words already is capable of eliciting emotions in you. When you add another layer, like the text in this case, um, it can actually have a, a, a more profound impact. Ideally, in you want to create a work of art where the music and the words are inseparable from each other. And this is what I was talking about, something that is highly collaborative. And when I feel that I need more text and I need to change the text, then I, I would ask Nilo to do that. And sometimes I will ask for his opinion on what I'm, the music I'm setting and seeing what his feelings are about it and how he, what he wants to communicate and if he feels that the music is, is communicating that. So ultimately, we want to create something that is inseparable, where you know, looking at the libretto won't be enough. And we don't have a recording of the piece. That's why I haven't played any selections of it. Otherwise, I will have played excerpts mm. of the piece. Um, but in the future, I probably, any t every time I show the libretto, I will accompany it by the musical excerpt because they're really interlinked to that point that they're inseparable. Yeah, this has been interesting, very, very much so. I'm, I'm wondering if you're at all familiar with um, a, another piece that deals with migration and refugees uh, by Manthea Diawara of Mali called An Opera of the World. I don't know that piece. It's actually, it, it's a staged performance that was also made into a film that was um, shown at Documenta a couple of years ago. And it's hard to find in America, but I would recommend it. But it, it also is trying to um, convey empathy and an understanding of the, both the temptations and the, and the risks and the, and the, the, the life-threatening risks, you know, taking your life in your own hands, whether to leave the village, whether not to leave the village. And then what happens if for those who follow the Pied Piper of the coyote, in a sense, and then get stranded on the beach and where, where, where they get fleeced for more money yet, and then they try to make it across the Mediterranean, and that is a tumultuous crossing from North Africa. In any case, I'm, one, I'm, I'm imagining that these topics are coming up more and more, and, you know, as... Um, as streams for art and for artistic expression, because they're so real, to, they're so present to us, as opposed to old historic operas or oratorios. I'm wondering if you're aware of other people who are also treating these topics in, in musical form or dramatic form. Well, I don't know about these particular topics, but there are quite a few groups who are composing around current 
issues, um, are, are, who are very interested in drawing attention to things that our society hasn't paid attention to in a way that they would like. Last year, Kronos Quartet was here with a new oratorio about the uh, massacre of My Lai in the Vietnam War and the current, the very current necessity to look at what war does and has done to American soldiers caught in environments where there's a, a kind of a hopeless loop um, where perhaps they're suggesting we really don't belong. Um, and so I do know that there is an impulse in, in a lot of contemporary classical music to look at issues that other people are maybe not paying as much attention to as we would like. I don't know of any other specifically dealing with immigration well, right now. Um, you know, off the top of my head, two come <coughs> that have been recently premiered. I think one was recently premiered, Julia Wolf, composed oh, an oratorio. Right. Anthracite Field. Um, and I think it had to do with uh, a factory, a tragedy that happened, you know, it's it early in the women's uh, rights movement. And it, ha it was a factory. The women's labor. Correct. Yeah, uh, the yeah. Triangle Factory Fire. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. And that's something to pay attention to. I haven't had a chance to see it, but I will. Well, and Julia also it. wrote about coal she did miners. Well. Yes. So she has had yeah. two, two oratorios yeah. touching upon important subjects that are from the past that, that resonate with the present. Mm -hmm. And actually, Opera Parallel is about to premiere um, an opera based on the life of George O'Keefe. Uh, called uh, Today It Rains. But what I, I want to call attention to that composer, whose name I don't remember now, because she had another opera called As One, uh, which is about a transgender individual. Yeah. Um, so that's also important. If I, rem I remember the librettist, though, Mark Campbell. Um, and Mark worked also on that opera called As One. So if you can look it up, that's another thing it doesn't And this is really something that Cal Performance is interested in exploring, which is the relevance of these classical forms, these classical music forms, in, in bringing events to um, audiences who might not be paying attention to them, but also in bringing the power of these traditional art forms to new topics and the dynamic between the two of them. You talked a lot about collaboration and how many different people and entities and organizations it takes to make something like that. It's also a collaboration between a really current, demanding, difficult, complicated moment in history and, and in our lives with these um, rigorous but dynamic art forms that can be calcified but don't need to be. So that's part of the dynamic here that we're interested in exploring, these traditional forms, making, drawing new attention. Yes, um, and this is, I mean, you, as a composer, when you're giving a platform, or as an artist, you know, when you have a platform, mm -hmm. you can choose to speak about things that, that are or are not relevant. You know, it's really up to you. No one asked me to write necessarily on the subject of dreamers, and I, no one was going to force me to do it. It is, a, it is a, a task that we undertook because we thought it was important to tell and it was relevant to our time. And like yeah. you said, the original title of this, the working title was Sanctuary, which was a different idea. And then as the times evolved and the conversation evolved, the story evolved. Exactly. exactly. We have a couple of questions. Another question. Um, it reminded me when I was a kid when we used to learn about the opera, we had to read the libretto before 
we could go to the opera or watch it. And so what this invites is more activism on the audience to be more learned about it. So, um, so reading the libretto and seeing what you did was wonderful, and I'd love to read it. Nilo will also be talking about the libretto at 1.30 on Sunday before okay. the performance. Great. He'll be reading from it and talking about it. So if you would like to review the libretto with the, the writer, That's the author great. of it. Yeah. So the question is, and it's very controversial about supertitles. <laughs> Oh, we will have support type. Oh, okay. Because, you know, you talked about being both in English and in Spanish. Yes. But I'm just wondering if that would... Do you feel that it detracts from the performance to have it? Or we've mm -hmm. just become more accustomed to having thing, aids like that if we're not prepared to go into an event like this? No, I think it has... Um, I think it's, a, it's essential nowadays because it has opened up the doors to a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be interested in that because of the difficulty of understanding a single especially in a brand new work. Um, and the word gets changed, you know, elongated and right. so twisted when it's sung. Even I can speak from my own experience, you know, when, when supertitles, uh, when DVDs came out with, with subtitles, um, I became a lot more engaged in opera than I was before. Mm. Because opera before was like, especially if you don't have a visual component, right? if you just see, let's say, or hear on, an, on, a, on a CD back then, um, then you just have the audio and you have to accompany with a libretto and after a while you really disconnect. Uh, this is more immediate and it, it is really a great aid. So I think it's, we, can, we have to use every tool available to us. I think the gentleman out there had a, a question. Yes. Thank you. You, you, you wrote this piece for a very big group of people, right? Uh, can it be scaled down to a much smaller group? I conceivably it could, but um, I don't feel motivated to do that just yet. I mean, wait, I'll wait until, uh, until the premiere and see, but I think that impact might be diminished if you have uh, smaller forces. I believe that there are other, uh, other pieces that will lend themselves more to that, but you know, I'm afraid that diminishing the impact would actually make the piece less effective too. There, there's a conscious application of the grand and the big, the conjuring of, a, of deep time and space in the largeness of orchestral sound, and then the singular soprano voice, the intimate, the individual. And these things are, are not possible in alternate form, so something different happens if you decide to do it. It would be very different. Than I think so too, yeah. And I somehow feel that, you know, had I conceived it for a chamber ensemble, for example, and soprano, it would be very, very different. Yeah. Um, and even I think Nilo's words, Nilo himself would have, wrote it, would have written it differently, I think. So, yeah. So it is, it is an. We talk about all these different collaborative forces, though, or all the different organizations, the different artists. The fact that Nilo is a is a playwright by trade. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. He wrote Anna of the Tropics um, and many other plays, and the, and the theater is his normal medium. So when he brings his theatricality to bear in poetry for a libretto, he taps in a different part of his of his creativity. 
Jimmy knowing that he would be working with a large orchestra and Essa Pekka Salonen, who's a superstar in his own right, who will be taking over the San Francisco Symphony in a year and a half, um, has his own artistic connection and demands about the orchestra, then each of the musicians brings their musicality and their instruments. Anna Maria Martinez brings her presence. And as each of these things add their creative moment, the reality of being in Zellerbach Hall over there for the premiere has its own demands. So it's the space, it's the audience, it's the artists collectively and individually. It always stuns me when I see something like this to remember, oh yeah, human beings made this. This was like on purpose. And that sounds obvious, but we can sometimes get swept up in music that's so beautiful and, and moves us. We forget that it came of and about and for human beings. And I, I think it's a, a reminder of how important it is that you are the first audience for this piece. You bring the final piece of collaboration. You are Berkeley audiences. You are students. You are music lovers. You are people who've never been to a, a concert hall before. All that combination completes the collaboration with this piece. And I think the fact that it's premiering here is not incidental to what it's going to sound like and what the experience is going to be like. Yeah. Does that make sense to Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Yeah. Agreed on all accounts. Yeah. So obviously I'm excited about it. And it's only the second oratorio I've ever been to in my life. I'm not an expert on oratorios at all. But I feel like I have different things to listen for, different ways to experience this now um, because of your generosity of sharing your process and your, your thoughts with us. Is there any last thing you want to leave us with about well, this project? Well, just a reminder, whoever is not able to attend in person, <coughs> I would encourage you to, to tune in uh, because we're going to have a live stream and I'm hoping also for the titles to be streamed directly to be fed into the stream so that you can see them as, as subtitles. And, uh, you know, as I said, really uh, try to just come with an open mind, an open ears, for sure. Open um, heart. And an open, and an open heart. And invite people who you know who might be interested, in, even people who you think might be a little adverse or, you know, not very friendly with, with this particular subject because... That's the whole point, I mean, to open up uh, the conversation, to open up the dialogue and continue it. And, you know, an invitation for all of you to really uh, try to understand the presence and the, the you know, contemporary classical music and the power that it can have uh, when it tackles modern-day subjects like these ones. Mm. Um, well, I, and yeah, go ahead. statistically speaking, most of us got here through immigration, right? So... Bring yourself, bring your stories. At 11 o'clock on Sunday morning in Zellerbach Playhouse next to the auditorium, there will be a roundtable conversation called Stories of Migration featuring the musician Van An, um, who will be playing some of her Vietnamese um, instruments for us and telling about her immigration story, as well as others on the UC Berkeley campus. And Nilo will be talking about the libretto at 1.30, also at Zellerbach Playhouse. So come and engage a little more deeply with the work of art. Bring a friend who doesn't know what they're getting into. 
and be their spirit guide. Um, I think it will be more fun both for you and for them. And I just want to thank Jimmy for flying in late last night, getting here and being so generous with your time. Thank you. And we'll see you at the performance. We'll be around at intermission. At least I will. Jimmy might be backstage. But I would love to hear your thoughts at intermission and after the performance. Come and find me and tell me what your experience was like. Thank you for inviting us, Peter. <laughs>